Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, sponsored by First National. I am Adam Pawatic. Joining me today is Aaron Cameron as co-host. And our guest today is Jonathan Westinda. He is the CEO and co-founder of Windmill Development Group. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Did we say the last name right? Nailed it. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> Adam practiced that about 10 times <laughs> not, before not, we got <laughs> As somebody with a weird last name, I'm used to. Uh, yeah, yeah really. Enough. I don't get that with Cameron. The only thing I get is people call me by my last name <laughs> as my first name. Yeah. The topic today is not names. It's actually going to be green development. Windmills at the forefront of that industry. And so we thought we'd have Jonathan on today to kind of talk about the ins and outs, the returns, the the headaches, the triumphs in the field of green development. This is, a, I guess we call you an industry recognized expert. I know I've seen you on a number of panels before talking about this very topic. Yeah, I've been, uh, I mean, I was one of the founding board members of the Canada Green Building Council when it got going and then sort of been the real differentiator for our firm and what we've been trying to do and, you know, create a unique, uh, unique product in the marketplace. How did you, so maybe back up, maybe how did you get into real estate in the first place? Long and sordid story, but uh, I grew up in a construction family. My um, parents ran what was the largest uh, construction, commercial construction entity in Ottawa at the time called Westina Construction. And I had been put on a construction site from the age of 11 in the summers. And my father had exposed me enough by the time I was sort of 16 or 17. I said, I don't have anything to do with the construction or development industry. <laughs> and huh. uh, went off and, you know, did an economics degree, an MBA degree, got into high tech, got into venture capital, and really had no interest in necessarily venturing back into the real estate and specifically the construction side of, of things. Around 2003, my uh, the venture capital world was getting less fun then because the bubble was uh, had burst, yeah. and my parents were at that stage of sort of looking for a succession plan. My brother had been working on running the construction company at the time, so I got a call to say, "What are you doing? Are you interested? Do you want to go anywhere with this?" At that time, a couple things happened. One is I had read a book called Natural Capitalism by uh, Amory Levins and Paul Hawkins, which you read these environmental books and they're all doomsday and they make you just want to crawl in a hole and they were all going to die mm. in 20 years. This was a, a great book that really talks about the business opportunities of focusing on sustainability with real estate being highlighted as one of the few industries that should be able to make money and reduce its carbon footprint and be you know highly sustainable. Secondly, in the in the investment side of things, we were working on, you know, things like solar and other stuff that, that were coming in from the VC side of things. We're all starting to make business sense now. So you're starting to see sustainability and, and financial rewards start to, to line up. And thirdly, which has not quite happened, but it is happening. If you look at all the major industries out there, real estate is still one of those industries that needs a technological revolution and it needs, you know, a, a real innovative turnover. And, you know, I'm, I'm passionate about the environment. I was, I was, you know, before doing my MBA, I, I was interested in getting a master's in marine biology and focusing on the oceans and all those sort of things. My path led me this way. But it uh, comes down to the fact that sustainability has and is going to continue to be one of the main drivers for innovation. And when we founded Windmill in 2003 with this focus, 
you know, the idea of a venture firm focusing on investing in building products was unheard of. There's mm-hmm. now two in Silicon Valley that just focus on, you know, materials and products that are they're innovative in in the uh, in the building space. You got things like Sidewalk Labs happening, and other where, where the convergence of tech and real estate, and and at the at the center of that, a lot of it is you know, call it efficiency, less waste, more sustainability. Mm-hmm. And you've got, uh, you know, great initiatives happening. Um, another firm out of Silicon Valley, got to get the name right, it's Cartera, I think, but they're, they're basically looking at, at, you know, all the inefficiencies of, of the uh, supply chain within the construction and development industry and how you streamline all that. So there's, you, you know, we're on this verge, but it, but it was driven at the time by the fact that, A, it, it's got, you know, if you, if you can look at real estate in a, in a life cycle capital point of view, it's a financially rewarding proposition and, and, you know, how do you structure things? So we spent a lot of time on the finance side of that. And secondly, it is and has continues to allow a expedited drive towards innovation in the industry. And if you were to look back at West Dynamic Construction practices when you're a teenage boy working on site there, how green were the practices then compared to uh, now? It must be a different planet in comparison. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's a lot different, but at the same time, I would say there's probably more of this the same than there is different still. You know, and that's that's the part that has got a lot of room to continue to change. But certainly, you know, especially when it comes to a construction site and waste and all those sorts of things, you know, the the amount of landfill avoidance is is pretty impressive relative to. What was the well? So let's let's start with 2003. You're 14 years in, almost 15 years in. What was the first step? Where, where did you go first? Was it raising capital, or you know, I, I guess I'm really curious, kind of how you sort of slowly entered into the marketplace and and started to create the impact that you wanted to. Yeah. So the the challenge at the time was when we, when we were looking at what to do with with Westina Construction, neither myself or my brother had any interest in taking over a construction business, and so we sold that business to Acon and sort of said to my parents at the time, "Take the money and run. Good luck." Hope you spend it before you die. And really looked at, you know, I was coming at more from, from a venture background. So really looked at, at Windmill as a startup. And we did, you know, we had to create the full business plan and went out and raised third-party capital to get this entity going, which in real estate where balance sheet is king, you know, it's a tougher proposition mm. to get going. As, are you going to developers? Are you, are you going to real estate people to start with or... So at the time, the, the, the goal was to go to uh, what was thought of as the best, you know, architectural firm in the country at the time that focused on sustainability, the best engineering firm that focused on sustainability, the best, you know, and, and, and getting a, an aggregation of service providers who were all like-minded and we'd go punch out a bunch of projects, right? That is largely where we raised our initial money. As happens in that industry, uh, people got bought by Stantex and others, and it's sort of you know, changes their purpose, changes their uh, core, their motivation, and you know the 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 sort of higher level thinking on things we were trying to achieve. You know, dissipated and 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 so since I bought all those shareholders out and back to sort of a fairly closely held initiative, and then we're raising money on a project by project basis. But our first project, you know, we didn't start this as a. A typical developer will build a house, make a bit of money, build two houses, make a you know build three houses, or there are a pension fund you know coming down. We you know our first project that that we really undertook was Dockside Green, which was a eight hundred million dollar project at the time in two thousand and four through small, a competitive process. Just a small project, and and that was again a testament to the fact the vision the vision was pretty clear. The project you know we we also weren't geographically ring fenced. We sort of said we're going to go where the political climate is right. 
when we formed Windmill, it was a liberal government at the time, and they were talking about putting in place a carbon trading program then, which then got blown up for 10, 12 years, however long it was with the conservatives. But the city of Victoria had put out what was still today one of the most progressive RFPs I've seen, which was sort of one of these things that, uh, you know, it was 10% factored on land price as opposed to 95% on land price and 90% on a, a fairly detailed triple bottom line matrix of what's the best value to the city. And that was everything from sustainability to affordability to you know, transportation. And we were lucky enough to partner up with Van City, who is an extremely like-minded investor. So that that sort of convergence let us go take an elephant down that we had no business being involved in. And we brought some you know expertise to the table to be our first venture. And Dockside turned out to be uh, the first lead platinum mixed-use community in North America, a carbon-neutral energy network. In Victoria, they they still dump raw sewage into the ocean. It's got its own septic treatment plant on site. was uh, highlighted as one of the top 16 most sustainable communities in the world by the Clinton Foundation. You know, really, really hit, hit a stride. And that's great. The challenge that, that and, and the frustration is a bit that that still hasn't been replicated many times. You know, we've done a bunch of other things since then, but it's still sort of the abnormal thing as opposed to the norm. And you kind of got into it and thought, oh, this is easy. We're just going to do a bunch of these over the years. Well, I wouldn't say it's easy. Well, yeah. fair. No, Re- real estate in general is yeah. not easy. Uh, and then no. you add these layers I, in, but uh, yeah, yeah. Per- perspectively easy right. in the sense that, you know, yeah. you didn't think you'd jump in, find an $800 million project right. like that. And, and have it be a home run. And have it be a home run. <laughs> That's yeah. right. That's right. Yeah. Interesting. So, so let's, let's take a step back first. I think, you know, some people that are listening will probably go, what do you mean by uh, lead certified? What is that? So LEED is, uh, you know, Leadership for Energy Environmental Design. It's the most well-recognized rating system in the industry today. It's certainly, you know, since, it, you know, I was on the founding board of the Canna Green Building Council in 2003. I don't think there's a commercial real estate owner out there today with Class A space that's not thinking of LEED or doing LEED or trying to do LEED through BOMA or, you know, something like yeah. through a BOMA Best approach or something it's like Canadian that. Canadian only? No, it's a uh, it's uh, derived from the states, and uh, it's a global rating system that is managed through a central entity in in the states. And Canada, if I get that right, but Canada basically is is the second highest per capita lead rated buildings in the world, next to the states. And so, what does it get you? I mean, I guess there, I, I know just from walking into buildings, you see the you see the little logo on the on the door, mm-hmm. and there's platinum and gold and silver. And what's the difference? One, and and what does it benefit you from a, as a landlord? How does it benefit you as a landlord? Aside from the obvious of sort of probably cheaper expenses, cheaper carrying costs. Yeah, and it's different per sector. So let's start with the commercial sector because that's where it's got the most take up. The, the you know, lead as a, as a rating, that's part of the thing that's confusing is you can get a, a lead bronze or a lead gold or lead platinum, but they could be very different things because it's a, it's a matrix of points. So you could focus heavily on, you know, very, very high energy efficiency and not so much say on water conservation and still be a lead platinum depending on the ratio of, of points. Mm-hmm. So every lead platinum building is not the same. Okay. But generally it's speaking to the fact that when it comes to the key matrices of or key areas of, of energy, water, indoor air quality, and materials that are used in the building, you know, as you go up the scale, the more sustainable they are, the less waste to landfill and the lower the impact on the environment. The you know, the, the, the beginning point of lead was friction a bit in the sense it's just going to cost more money for everybody. 
and uh, the industry is, you know, this this is an industry that's driven by volume solutions. So whenever anything's sort of the anomaly, it will be more expensive. When things become the norm, they just sort of become normal cost. So lead, when it first got going, was was something that, you know, the, the discussion was always about, okay, lead platinum, 10% more expensive, you know, 15, what is it? Uh, but it was always sort of triggered as the more expensive and that had two faults to it. Well, one is is because it was it was sort of products and services and things like that where everyone's kind of going through their own learning curve. But second was just how you looked at those finances. So the finances when you're when you're looking at things like saving energy, you're looking at a life cycle saving. You're not looking at a first cost saving. So how do you you know how do you monetize that? And the tools in place for a developer to be able to monetize the fact they're going to spend five percent more upfront, even though it had a great payback over seven to ten years, it still didn't mean they're going to get that money in their pocket. There's, you know, uh, fragmented rewards as far as tenants and all those sorts of things. So initially, that was sort of the barrier was just how do you get over this cost cycle? What came, you know, sort of driving largely out of left field was tenants saying. It's, we, attra- it's attractive to me. It's attractive to us. It's our workspace. You know, it's the at all old age. Uh, and our employees like to see it. You may be able to attract better talent potentially, right? right? And and it comes down to the your your you know your the the, the the time and time again stated thing that they, you know that the real estate's only ten percent of your cost or you know or ten twenty percent of your cost the rest is all your employees and productivity and so you create a better work environment that creates even one percent increase in productivity and you've more than paid for anything that relates to that yeah. but the problem with all those again in, in the larger scale package if you take away split incentives it's a winner it's a case of who's paying and who's winning that's always sort of the problem in in, in getting the math delineated. And the timing on the payment, of course. Yeah. Yeah. When you say that uh, not all lead buildings are created equal, is there a way of, I mean, to be crude about it, gaming the system where if you're very strong in a few categories, you can qualify for a silver level building, but maybe in your view, the building's not the same from uh, a green perspective as another lead building that uh, qualified with different characteristics? Yeah, but I'd say it's within a fairly small degree of margin. I mean, if if you have a lead silver, lead gold, lead, like they, they they are still better performing buildings than a counterpart. It's not like you can truly fake it. But certainly, you know, if you're already downtown and you have no parking, you're already getting a bunch of points just for that, right? Without the building necessarily being any more energy efficient or water efficient, those types of things. But again, from an overall footprint point of view, it's a valid scoring. So yes, but not to a, a level of variance that I think would be concerning to say there's some fraudulent or you know misrepresentations with okay. with what's there. And then uh, lead platinum, how common is that? It's not very common. I don't know the exact percentage, but it's uh, you know I would say of the lead application. So lead itself is you know was tracking. I'm not sure exactly where it was today, but it was still sort of tracking maybe twenty to thirty percent of the marketplace, and lead platinum would be tracking maybe five percent of that kind of thing. So it's a bit of a rarity. It takes it takes a lot more upfront thinking. It takes a lot more thought on uh, again that life cycle financial payback and and how you can because it definitely is more expensive. You can't take away it's a it's a higher first cost. It's got a positive, you know, we always look at things in the sense that it should have a seven-year or better positive life cycle payback. And if it does, we'll find ways to monetize that and ensure that the money gets back in the right pocket and everybody wins. And we're we're recording right now, as I'm sure we mentioned on the show before, in Toronto, just north of what we're calling the South Court, where a lot of new development's going on. Those buildings down there, I got to imagine they'll be lead at some level or other. When they come on stream, will that improve the stock of lead availability? Yeah, I mean, again, on a commercial standpoint, I don't think there's a single institutional builder out there that would be building a new building today trying to attract a class A tenant that's not going to be at least a lead 
gold target. You know, they might end up at a lead, but it'll be a lead gold target. And you're getting your banks and and others that are sort of putting policy in place. So that's the only space they're going to lease. So that that is great. But the reality is, is that the new building market is, is you know, give or take 3% of the building stock. It's, it's the existing building stock, if we want to think of a global environmental footprint, that's the real opportunity, the real challenge where there's less activity. And with, with LEED has, a, has an existing building certification program called EBOM, which is starting to get more traction. But it is, you know, every, every new LEED gold building or platinum building that goes up puts that much more pressure on the existing stock mm-hmm. because it means it's just tenants looking to slide into quality. Is, is there low-hanging fruit if I'm a progressive landlord and I'm buying an office building, an older office building in a downtown core environment? What is what would I do if what if I wanted to go in and let's say I'm not going to you know spend an arm and a leg, but I do want to try to get at least some sort of lead certification? What type of mechanisms or what type of infrastructure am I changing in the building to get myself there? So it's a great question, and it's one of the one of the challenges in the sense of saying I don't want to spend a bunch of money. Right. Yeah. I don't. I mean, you could buy the thing, gut it, and you know, re- basically take the shell and rebuild the whole thing. But that's that's you know almost the same cost as building ground up. Well, I'll give you a real life example. So we we worked with Morgard on uh, seventy seven Bloor, which uh, was an old sixties energy hog that they brought us in as sort of a service provider with a program we run with Leadcore Construction called Leadcore Renew, which is which is focused on uh, on retrofits. And uh, our approach is is basically a design build finance, you know, through the end because we believe your average existing building owner doesn't think you can make money, right? Because what happens with an existing building is, yes, you can go say, what's the band-aid I can put on this? Can mm-hmm. I go sw- fix all the light fixtures? You know, Great, but you've got 15, 20-year life cycle systems in there that are going to have to get replaced at some point. As soon as you take all the low-hanging fruit away and the high payback stuff away, when you got to fix that bigger stuff, it's there's no payback on that. So, uh, or it's a 40-year return. Or, or it's a 40-year return. You look at, yeah. So when we started with Morgard as an example, we said, you know, one of the rules here is, is we can't be driven by amount of capital. We can only be driven by return. So if that means it's, you know, a $2 million or a $30 million check, that doesn't matter as long as you're confident the return can be the same or better, well, better than what you're making right now on the building. So that came up with five scenarios. So the first scenario is what's the band-aids, you know, fix the lights. Aerator you know, faucets. Tweak, tweak the HVAC volu- system, all that sort volume, of stuff. Low volume toilets, that kind of stuff. Like, yeah, some some so, of that stuff. Right. And But it doesn't touch the fact it's uh, it's an envelope with single pane windows. It's an old HVAC system, all that kind of stuff. And so that would have meant spending something in the range of three to five million bucks, which would have gotten your energy performance up about 20%, but was basically a throw away because all your main systems, you're still in a 10-year cycle. You're going to have to replace all that. And so we went from that scenario up to, there was five different scenarios, up to a fifth scenario, which is essentially, got it, you know, replace the envelope, replace the HVAC system, get closer to a 50% energy efficiency, get to uh, essentially renewed life cycle completely of the building. And that was closer to a $30 million check. But that return on it was able to deliver a much higher return than what they were existing getting on the building. One of the main things, and you're seeing this happen in, in, in a lot of buildings, is the business case goes now well beyond just sustainability, but the optimization of space. A lot of these buildings were designed in a way that weren't optimal for how we occupy space today. The winner here was a HVAC floor, a mechanical floor that's no longer needed. You know, once you start putting VAVs, so we turn that into new office space. Little things like replacing windows on the ground floor of Bloor at, you know, $300 a square foot rent and putting the new glass on the outside of the columns instead of the inside and gaining that extra square footage of, of rent. You know, sort of really going through a true optimization program of how do we not only get the the highest performance environmentally, but also now on a square footage yield and a new, you know, sort of mm-hmm. usage pattern. So 
so the question when people ask that question, I uh, you know we we the the, the, the answer is I'm, you're spending an arm and a leg. Well, no, <laughs> we, 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 it's again it's a driven like if you if you take a patch of dirt from a new development point of view, you look at it and you bring all the money to the table and say how can we get the highest yield out of this patch of dirt, right? And the amount of money isn't really the issue as long as the return is there. And that mentality has to come into a lot of the existing building stock and treating it like it's a new project, right? And it's not so much spend an arm and a leg, it's how can I get my highest return? Right. And that, there's no shortage of money in real estate. It's taking that mentality to the retrofit market. Because there's a shortage of yield. That's the real issue, right? If That's right. If you make it work, then That's right. people are into it. What other things are you seeing in the industry then? If we just keep going on ways to... Um, with a focus on sustainability and environmentalism that real estate owners, that people should be focusing on? Like what kind of other stuff are you recommending when you are doing your consulting? So there's, you know, it depends on, again, the, the style and type of development, but certainly there's increasingly a focus on district energy, you know, on broader scale uh, what is that? Footprints. What does that mean? So that's taking, uh, you know, instead of just plugging into the grid, it's taking, uh, and, and, you know, so existing shopping centers are going through a bonanza right now of, of uh, you know, intensification and revitalization. And adding three to five times density to what's there and creating essentially a, a closed energy network that is able to drive. And that's, that's often a combination of some renewables, some geothermal, and some sharing of heat between different uses of residential and, and commercial. And, you know, really being able to get kind of a matrix of development. So we, we're just working on a um, project in Ottawa that we initiated called Zibby, which is a 4 million square foot urban infill mixed-use development right downtown Ottawa that we've designed a uh, carbon-neutral district energy system that will be a combination of using waste heat from a, a neighboring industrial plant, geothermal, run-of-river hydro, renewables, other things, all tied into basically a, a, an integrated grid that allows the developer or owner basically to be its own utility. In this case, we've partnered with Ottawa Hydro, so we have them as a 50% partner. But that sort of drive towards as, as renewables and all these sorts of things are starting to pencil and make sense independently, it's taking, and that's a lot with a lot of areas with sustainability, sort of taking your revenue streams from your real estate. So if you just focused on the fact, okay, if you have a commercial building, it's rent, how else can I make money? Well, if I can now be the energy provider, okay, there's another revenue stream. If I can now deal with commercialization of how I deal with the waste and composting and create a bit of a different business structure, there's another revenue stream. So there's a little bit of, of kind of trying to get to how to monetize waste in all extents and, and make different business lines out of that. What frustrates you the most in this process or going through this as you know, you're, you really are, I think, trailblazing to, to a great extent. What, what frustrates you the most? Well, one one that it is it is still not the norm that this is you know the standard approach thing. I would say that the the system is to blame in the sense that you know the planning process, the finance process, when you get a deal going, it like you, you're just so bogged down and just ticking the boxes nuts. You don't have any time to really focus on creativity and and a lot of this stuff. None of this is rocket science, but it does take someone who, especially established real estate developers who have got a system, they're making money. You know, it, it takes a bit of a you know, saying I'm going to go back to school a bit here and go through a learning curve and, and learn how we do things a little yeah, differently. Why bother? I've got my yield. I've, exactly. got, my, I've got my machine. So that's right. It ain't broke. Why would I fix it? Right? That's right. And that is, you know, so that's lost opportunity. But I'd say it's lost opportunity in the sense of both from an environmental point of view. But again, I'm a, I'm a firm believer that if done right, this is this improves yield. And if you look at it from the point of view, this is an investment in improving yield. That mentality is, you know, most people just don't 
see it that way. And and because there has been more stories, I think, of, of people saying, well, it just cost me more money and not because, A, two things happen. One is they don't know how to measure properly from a life cycle point of view, how is the savings and how do, how do you make that flow into the right pockets? And secondly, what is the bigger thing is that often it gets added on too late in the game. You know, so you, you sort of say, okay, we're three quarters of the way through planning. Oh, wouldn't it be nice if we tacked on the fact we're going to talk about being sustainable, right? And this is when your design's 80% done and all that, and it's just too late. And and so that just ends up adding more cost, more money, and it does become- Then it doesn't uh, make sense. Uh, it doesn't make sense, yeah. Is there a profile to the landlord or developer that is more open to these types of conversations? I am imagining sort of more of a pension fund uh, life co that are really long-term holds. You know, they're developing for a 50-year return that would look at this. So yeah, that makes perfect sense versus some of our, some of developers or, or landlords that are really, you know, they may sell it in two years or three years. So it doesn't make as much sense because they're not going to earn the return over whatever your projected you know, duration is. Yeah. I mean, it's a, uh, another quick story, but uh, Doug Pierce, who was the former CEO of, of BCIMC way back when I remember we were talking to him about something we were doing. And, you know, you think of these pension funds as, as which they are, they're, they're huge, large uh, bubbles of money, but they all come from grassroots sources. And so Doug Pierce had said to me, I just had one of my board members ride their bike over for our board meeting and telling me I have to figure out how to be more sustainable and how we invest our money. I don't know what to do with that, right? Yeah. But the point is, is the pressure was coming from the grassroots sources. And so for pension funds, you have both the source of capital putting pressure, but then also, yes, the product that they're owning, they are thinking long-term. And, and sustainability definitely is a long-term game, and it's a definite long-term investment return game. So that's one source that is naturally kind of falling in place. And CalPERS in California has been one of the leaders, you know, in, in investing in sustainability. Then you go down the chain, you know, to the different groups. And I would say most of it has been driven by market pressure. So that's why, you know, in the commercial marketplace, you've seen more happening because tenants have been demanding it. So landlords are reacting and, you know, trying to make that happen. Less so in the, in the residential space, just because, again, it's fragmentation. There's no real points of high pressure. And, you know, especially in, in a hot market like Toronto, you'll sell anything. It doesn't the, matter. The condo, it in the condo yeah. market particularly, right? Yeah. 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 What about, uh, about REITs? Have to worry about monthly distribution or quarterly distributions and their timelines might be a lot tighter in terms of, you know, projected uh, forecasting. Yeah. So again, you know, REITs and, and increasingly more so REITs are getting, you know, REITs, pension fund, they're all going vertically integrated and getting more and more into the development game. So it's really, you know, to the extent that you're getting into that, it's it's really about taking, again, more of a development mentality to how you map out your returns from the package. And, and you know, investment here is going to get me this kind of return down the road. Certainly there is the quarterly driven challenge. Again, the short-term thinking that does change behavior. And that's, especially when you get to the existing buildings and we talk, you know, your, your, your idea of really doing a, a monster retrofit usually comes down to the fact that, you know, the, the pressure points with a property manager who's been given a budget of 3% a year of the building and you show me how you're going to green the building with that budget, <laughs> yeah. right? And that's just sort of, and if not, it's going to eat into quarterly dividends. And so it's got to have the story to it to say, we're taking, we're not taking 3%, we're taking 15%, but that's going to take the life cycle of this building, you know, and improve the yield over the next 15 years or improve the, the, the saleability of it, you know, even if we sell it, you know, after maturity, after we finish our program in three or five years. In terms of tenant perception, I remember being at the Winnipeg Real Estate Forum back in 2014, and this stuck with me for some reason. The panel there was discussing a, a topic and it got on the, you know, it veered onto LEED certification. And one of the panelists there, I can't remember who, the comment there was that unless the tenant has a public facing corporate image, they don't care about and won't pay for these kinds of certifications 
on a building. This is four years ago. Obviously, you know, times do change, but do you find that to have any sort of resonance with what you found in the market? Absolutely. It's often used as, as you know, a bit of the rationale not to. And there's two things to that. One is no matter whether you get lead certified or not, I, I think there's notion of who pays for, I mean, where the, the fundamental flaw is in a lot of thinking is that it is all starting at a higher cost as opposed to this is really a function and the business case is there. This is going to make more money. It's a question of how can that now be structured in a way, whether it be a green loan with tenants or these sorts of things that the paybacks can go to the right place. So it takes a time to sort of think of that. So, but once, if, if you have that, then the second thing, yes, the, the certification element is one that, you know, and even once you've done it a few times, you know, and you've established the fact you're really doing it, you need to get certified every time. It's really an authenticity thing. And so if there's a way you can show it's authentic and, and the best way to show it's authentic is data that, you know, you, you're actually achieving these things, you don't necessarily need the certification. But for most relationships in real estate, they are not always known quantities and all that kind of stuff. So it becomes the authentication, you know, metric that says, okay, we said we're going to do this. We did it as opposed to we'll show you data in two years after the fact to show you that we actually, you know, achieved what we said we were going to do. I know you're active in Toronto and Ottawa. Are, um, are you active in smaller markets as well? Not at the moment. We've developed in Victoria and Calgary and, you know, broader Ottawa area, broader GTA area. But right now, the focus is really just Ottawa and, and GTA. So I guess the next question might not exactly relate, but in markets that aren't, you know, on fire, do the condo purchasers see value in these kinds of add-ons to their buildings? So, you know, condo, and, and, and we've obviously had a lot of experience in, in marketing condos, and it, and it speaks to what is sustainability. You know, so when we started, it took us a while to figure out what is the message that hits, you know, for the condo buyer. Certainly, we started with the fact that, hey, you can save some energy. And, and it's true on a commercial, but like the metric of energy is is not meaningful enough to really move the dial. You does, know, it's does interesting. The condo, it's does, does the condo buyer, they're not, they're not crunching these numbers saying, hey, if I'm saving $30 a month and, right. you know, present value that over, a, you know, the 10-year ownership period, like they're not going through that. Right. That, that and, it, and, it, and it's right. killed by, you know, if you have 10% more common elements, they love a pool and all that kind of stuff. Well, that's far more expensive than, yeah, <laughs> you exactly. know, saving a bit of energy. Where it really hit, and this was sort of the evolution, I would say, of where the sustainability, you know, evolution went five, six years ago was health and wellness. So we're focusing on the fact that, you know, there's no off-gassing. All our products are ones that improve indoor air quality, natural lighting, all these kind of things that improve your wellness. That was the real trigger that worked for us from a marketing point of view, on the condo point of view. I would say that, you know, further now, it's it's really about social sustainability and what is it that you're creating as a fabric, you know, sort of create a, instead of just being a, another building in the marketplace, you know, a, a real community building, you know, place that's building community by virtue of the mix of uses, the sustainability elements, the, you know, whether you're incorporating some affordable housing, all these sorts of things. But when it comes to the condo market, I would say that it's challenging in the sense that first and foremost, no matter what it is, and it's true of any real estate location, still is king. So you have to have the right location. You, If you have a bad location and say your green doesn't matter, you know, they're, they're still going to be drawn to the right location. So then it's a question of, okay, if you're in the same location, you're in an A location, you got a guy across the street you're competing with who's in an A location, people we know are not going to pay more for green. So how do you differentiate yourselves from, you know, one to the other? And that's where we really succeeded in saying, okay, we are going to be a lead platinum building. And guess what? Your price point per square foot and your common element costs, all things compared, are exactly the same as a guy across the street. However, in this case, we have amortized the savings that are going to be realized through what I'll call a green loan, which I get into, you know, through the condo fees, which are structured such that our costs, we our premium we had to achieve those savings, our amortized 
amortize in mm-hmm. your condo fees, and that expires in seven years. So instead of being in a structure that's set up that you're, you know, you're just going up in condo fees, you've actually got a structure that expires and you can see your fees go down on one one element in seven years. Interesting. So you've got a product where you're saying, listen, we got a we got a lead platinum, which to you means health and wellness primarily from a condo point of view, same price point, all those other things, and some benefits from a financial point of view down the road. That that's Seems been sort of the the, yeah. the compelling element. Yeah, of course, in this marketplace, everything's selling, so it probably doesn't, doesn't matter. matter. In this market, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what about apartments? I mean, uh, at First National, of course, we're we're focused on the apartment market, the largest apartment lender, and, and doing a lot of construction these days. And so, are you having some success with that segment of the market? To say we're having success, you know, we ourselves are venturing into the rental market as everyone is in, in new builds. We have done a lot of work. We have a consulting division called Urban Equation that we've done some work with some of the larger apartment owners. And, you know, anything that is that is a long-term own where the operational costs are in the control and uh, have to be paid by the landlord, that's, you know, doing that math is easy, right? You don't have the split incentives like you do in a commercial building with tenants or in a condo where you're, you're, you're doing a handoff point. So that is one where the math is much easier to do, but it still comes down to the challenge of, well, people are, you know, when you buy an old building and you retrofit it, the new countertop, you know, is going to be the, the bigger attraction than the fact this has created more energy efficiency. So it still becomes an alignment of, the landlord focusing on the the immediate marketability, but not necessarily looking at this thing from saying, okay, how do I pencil this thing out to spend my money to get the best yield, you know, over a 10, 20 year turn beyond just the market. So you're not finding, things. I mean, I would suspect that if you're looking at, uh, if I'm a tenant, if I'm a renter and I'm going around looking at new apartment units to rent, often now these new developments are, are downloading the utility costs, at least right. a component of the utility costs of the tenant. If I know that I've got a sort of a lead certified building, which, which predominantly would, would presumably come with yep. discounted costs on the utilities that might allow me to pay or, or I might justify to myself that I can pay an extra 50 bucks per unit in rent or maybe you know 10 cents per square foot just because of that. You're not finding that? that the tenant's rationale doesn't really work Again, that Again, it's, it's a, you know, even when you look at purpose-built rental and, you know, getting more and more into uh, amenities and shared, like, there's such a bucket of different costs. It's hard so to many things compare that they're considering, A to yeah, B. Yeah. I can say that uh, where we found, you know, where we've seen the successes, again, more around the lifestyle-oriented elements of saying this is a greener, more sustainable building and everything that means than it is just focusing on the energy bill. You put a farm on the rooftop, you probably That's attract right. more people. Exactly. Yeah. And that we launched a condo last year called The Plant in uh, Toronto here that just won Project of the Year Award actually at the, at the Build Conference, which was all focused around urban uh, farming. And really was uh, focused on the idea of, of having units where you, we had, you know, in our sales suite, which we never had to open <laughs> because of the market, but, you know, had hydroponic growing towers, all these sorts of things to, to encourage people. Our common element is not your common element with uh, games and all that kind of, it's a community kitchen with growing towers and all these sorts of things. And, and the, you know, the social fabric, the notion of the social fabric that creates and the, the notion of, you know, all the conversations happen around the kitchen table really took on its mm. own, uh, its own storm has been very, very successful. And with that type of marketing, you're going to attract a certain type of tenant that are all going to have some similarities, I would think. Yeah, well, the, the one thing that's interesting, I would say, that might differentiate what we're doing from a, a chunk of product out there is that generally all our developments have been more in the range of like 80% owner-occupier as opposed to, you know, driving more to investor. And, and it's because the product we are creating is product people are looking at as something saying, I, you know, all the attributes you hear that I could make this a home, you know, I'd like to live here. It's a big compelling lifestyle argument to uh, to move there without yeah. a doubt. Yeah. yeah. 
On the topic of profitability, how much of it is driven by government incentives? So the incentives is a is a uh, a tough one. I think most industry players would say the money's harder to get than in what it's worth to get those incentives, and that that's what sort of triggers things often in, in not seeing those results. And I think the incentives helps grease the wheels, but the incentives really are, you know, a drop in the bucket and helping you. They're they're more you know kind of business case type things and stuff like that. Certainly, in retrofits are some good incentives coming through from hydro and other things that are meaningful, but it still takes where where the challenge is. It's still takes someone to say to get that incentive i got to go back to school still i got to go bring uh, get a bunch of studies done that i normally wouldn't get done at this point in time a short fuse to things and you know really put the effort to do this the reward is definitely there so i would say there's lots of incentives out there that are are quite good but they're underutilized because it's still that uh, effort up front that that is missed you know in in or or the uh, motivation's not there but i'd also say that from again from a life cycle point of view the incentives, you know, and, and these are these are debates I have when talking to different government authorities and all that kind of stuff. Is is the incentive really one to say I'm going to give you 25 grand to go do a, an energy model, or is it if you can get all this stuff figured out, we're going to give you you know half point off your long term interest rate, you know, where you are seeing, and how does that incentive work out? Because the everything should be a net cash flow positive done properly when you get into environmental benefits, and this getting into a broader topic, but you know, a building getting to say a low carbon or zero carbon is a 70%, I would say, public benefit, a 30% owner benefit, because it's really a bigger problem we're trying mm-hmm. to resolve. And so how do you how do you make that you know risk reward one that is meaningful and incense that behavior earlier on to get that happen? I'd say the current incentive structure is not really nailing it. Which actually is an argument that if government incentives are not a large part of it, the sustainability can really drive its own drive its own bus is not just fueled by government incentives that may or may not be there in ten years that the the concept of green development really can sustain itself. Yeah, no, and it, it can sustain itself, but it, there's still a problem in the sense that if green development is still maybe I'll be generous and say it's ten percent, you know, as opposed to to ninety percent. You know, something's still missing that equation to sort of just make it. And and it's the carrot and the stick thing. I mean, the, the building codes have increasingly gotten more and more regiment to drive to higher performers. And uh, I always was a fan of of more of the carrot and the incentive, but I'm I'm now more a believer that I think the only way you can get there is the stick, which is you just raise the bar and everyone everyone has to, to follow. It. Yeah. What um, what are you most proud of over the 13 years or or currently right now that you're working on? I think that uh, we're, you know, we're the only developer in North America who can say that every mixed-use building they've done has achieved lead platinum or better. And and the lead platinum is not so relevant as it is in in the sense of really just showing the authenticity of our mission, you know, in, in achieving that. And we've taken that further now. And the Zibi project in Ottawa is an example. We brought on the One Planet Living System, which which takes it a step further, which brings in a lot of social sustainability elements. It's got. 10 key areas that only maybe three of them focus on buildings, the rest is on local equity and health and wellness and, you know, all these other areas, which bring into a broader matrix now of how you create better social fabric with the developments you're doing. So what, maybe let's dive a little bit more. What do you mean by this, this one planet living? And I, you kind of high level explained it, but how does that get impacted or how does that impact the development of the community that you're developing? So... One of the first things we did when we were looking at the Zibi development in a very large scale development was what is it, you know, we found with Lead as a brand to start with, you, you know, people, they associate Lead with green, but when you actually go through and you certify a building and your Lead Platinum or Lead Silver, especially in the residential space, 
they don't really understand. It's a lot of engineering. It's a lot, as I said, not, not one building is necessarily equivalent to the other. The One Planet Living, which is uh, it was it was a spin out from World Wildlife Federation, is now managed by by a regional in the UK. It's a nonprofit charity that that uh, and they've they've uh, advised on about thirty billion dollars worth of real estate. The Euro Disney in in France just opened up what is a, a great shining example of a One Planet Living community. There, it's all very cool geothermal wells, all these sorts of things, but. The underlying message is, which everyone kind of gets, is that, you know, what we're trying to do is develop real estate that uses the resources of one planet, whereas everybody, if everybody lived like we live in Canada, we'd need five planets. Mm. So that now says it's really ecological footprint driven in the sense of everything we do from materials, energy use, all those sorts of things. But then not necessarily inherent in that message of one planet, but it does get into then social equity and, you know, builds in notion of like, for example, on, on the Zibi site, a large part of our program is partnerships with Algonquins and uh, creating uh, Algonquin driven businesses. And I think because this is land that was sacred to the Algonquins and that's a lot of local equity and social equity they bring into it, which ultimately is just creating a better overall community fabric to what we're, we're doing. So this is something in the plant that we did here in Toronto was was a derivative in the sense that we said, okay, what can we do with this building that can create an interesting theme that is focused on sustainability, that's hitting on sort of some of the things that would be interesting from a market point of view. And, you know, urban agriculture is increasingly becoming a, a skyrocketing trend. So we sort of took that focus on food and agriculture of One Planet Living and said, let's theme the building around that, right? And that's been very successful. So it's um, sounds like it you should do plant two or plant three or just keep keep replicating that. If you model. have some sites for me, I'd love to. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that problem. Yeah, that's of right. Course. Yeah. <laughs> what technology that's currently at? They call it a concept stage. You know, it's it's near term, but by no means at the marketplace. That you think is gonna be the biggest game changer, or you're the most excited about, or is even just the most out there. So first of all, I'll start with, I'm, I'm a believer that, you know, back to the future is better in the sense that the passive technology is your best sustainable technology. You know, so when we, before the air conditioner and we figured out how to, you know, heat and cool things more passively, that's still our best technology, right? So how much of the back to the future can we figure out? But then as we get into what are the newest, latest, greatest technologies, I, w- I would say on a building front, you know, certainly it's it's about really data points, like the, the just the infiltration of data into everything, you know, so you know exactly what's happening anywhere, anytime in any building. So you can essentially start monitoring and controlling and, and making your building very smart. And that's why you're getting people like Google through Sidewalk Labs, who we're consulting with them on the, on the key side development on the sustainability front. IBM, other guys, they see the building industry as the next nirvana, right, as far as data goes. So there's an element of the smartness of buildings and what that entails. And that even then gets down to your materials and those sorts of things. But then I would say the, you know, the where I think there's the greatest opportunity, where, where will, I, will I say there's that uh, technology I see on the shelf right now, but it's really the, the reskinning. And and or or what we create as our skins of buildings and how they are designed, implemented, and what kind of materials they're using, and you know, increasingly you're getting um, integrated photovoltaics and uh, photovoltaics into the skin and all these sorts of things that really make your building more of a living, breathing building is interesting. You know, there's a, there's a bunch of things happening there. I think in the shorter term, increasingly uh, geothermal happening on on more and more of an urban basis. Our, our building, the plant we're doing is a geothermal driven system. We've just finished one in Ottawa called the Eddy that was geothermal. And that's a no-brainer, really. it's It's got, you know, a, a good payback and, and really dramatically lowers uh, footprint, those sorts of things. And then I, you know, I, I would say just the 
the different types of materials, you know, another one that's kind of neat is coming out, which is this phase change glass. You know, it's back to the envelope again, but like few glasses, one that's becoming very popular where, you know, it basically adjusts tint to time and day. And that it's amazing how much impact that can have on heating and cooling controlling because, you know, with, without that, unless you spend a bunch of money in blinds and you close it, then you just, you know, your, your heating and cooling runs wild and you can't really control that. So it's an integration of all these things, but it's, it's all these tools that needs to come to one control point And that's really back to your, how smart is your building and, and how, how effective are the data points, mm-hmm. points of your building. Which will also likely accelerate older product being obsolete that much faster. Ex- by yes. Yeah. Before we, before we started recording, you were talking about one of the major challenges is really getting ahead of the development planning. And so what are you doing to, to, to tackle that and, and really getting in front of these developers before they start making any, any major decisions? So we've seen, you know, from our existence as a, as a company, as I said, where we've had our most success is when we've had aligned capital with aligned vision and, you know, the right thought at the table early on that's let us really win at the end. You know, both financially, timeline, certainly in the development industry, time is a major factor, especially when you're going through complicated approval processes. And, you know, also been frustrated by the fact, as I've mentioned a few times, this is this is sort of the anomaly versus the norm and how can we make a, a broader impact. So from our point of view, we're looking at a hybrid of our consulting firm, Urban Equation, which works with a lot of developers and Sidewalk Labs and others in our, our development firm that has been the soup to nuts developer and sort of saying, how can we combine that and try and make more impact with more developers and bring the right tools and knowledge to the table at the right time so it's not them having to go through the learning curve. So we have put together what we're calling the One Planet Living Impact Fund. We've, we've licensed the One Planet Living program for North America for this fund. And it's, uh, I won't get into the structure of the whole thing, but it's a very compelling fund structure that would have us go to a developer and say, you might not have been thinking about these things, but we're prepared to come and, you know, you get the disincentive when you're the paid consultant. There's not always a lot of trust. There's still not a lot of time to spend money. So now you've got skin in the game. We're going to be skin in the game. We're going to invest our capital. And not only are we going to invest our capital, if we say, let's say the target to make it simple, still a far reaching goal, but we say this project is going to be carbon neutral. If at the end of the day you achieve carbon neutrality, our fund structure and our capital sources is such that it basically means our equity at the end of the day will be discounted to to that developer. So they'll get a win for, mm. for making it happen. And that's often, you know, the big thing that drives the, the, the average developers. Okay. If I can get a better financial gain at the end of the game. So we've designed this whole system to bring the knowledge, the tools, everything into the right at the right time, but also the incentive structure so that everyone wants to see that outcome happen. And so that one planet living fund structure is something we're just, we're just on the street with now and getting the different pieces together and, and uh, hope to be able to, to talk, you know, more formally about that in the fall. And if somebody wanted to reach out to you, how would they get a hold of you? They're uh, welcome to email me at jonathan at windmilldevelopments.com. Also worth checking out the website. It's beautifully done. A lot of information there. A lot of saying stuff on it. Um, Jonathan, thanks a lot for coming in today. We appreciate your insight to what, I mean, unfortunately, as you pointed out, is you know, only 10% of the market right now. But hopefully we'll have, have you on a few years and we'll be talking 40%, 50% of the market, something like that. Yeah, agreed. Nope. Good for all thanks of us. Thanks for having me. It's great. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.